is the extreme dad listening challenge. You have to be totally focused on your wife and what she's saying for 30 seconds. Unfortunately, it's never been done until today. Ready? Go. So I found on Pinterest this great idea for Ollie's second birthday. It's the Kentucky Derby. Let's you know build up the big day, and we can do um, stick horses made of pool noodles, and the kids can do a race. You could mow the yard to be like a race course. Hey, so tonight, as soon as we get home, I've got to finish getting all the stuff away from the garage doors because we're getting our new garage doors tomorrow. It's 7 a.m. You're taking the girls to school tomorrow on their bikes, so we need to make sure the bikes are out of the way of the garage doors, okay? And then I need to call and schedule. We're gonna have mulch delivered. Can you do it on Monday? Can we can we shovel and deliver the mulch on Monday? So I went and got my nails done today. I did this new thing called the dip. You have, they like put some nail polish on and they dip in, in this powder and it's supposed to stay longer, up to like three weeks, as opposed to the two weeks that the gel polish came, but. And, and they can also, um, you know, get dressed up with a great big hat. I can dress in my little sundress. I can't have you wear a bow tie. You have to wear a bow tie. Okay, can you also be the announcer for the, for the if, if you can at least get the girls out of the way so that I can do all, get all of this stuff done because we need to do it before it is absolutely 100 degrees on the deck because then the paint will peel and I've got to get the paint on the deck. Are you listening at all? Seriously, are you listening? I, I've got all of these projects to get done. It, so it was so time. hard to pick out the color though. I mean, it took me forever. Yeah. I just stood there and just, just that must have been went so through all hard. the colors. Tim, 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 yeah, yeah. I keep trying yeah. to talk to you and you just keep phasing out and just doing this thing you always do. So anyway, so the cake, I'm thinking that, you know. Okay, and the new concrete has got to be sealed within 28 days. Are you gonna help? So we are gonna have to move everything that we just moved out of the pod, right, and into the garage back out so we can seal the entire garage floor. Are you gonna help with that or not? Are you, I mean, seriously. Dan, are you listening? <laughs> uh, but normally I do the gels, and I kind of like it better, but this one won't chip, so I just went with it anyway. It and I was there gosh, for, you yeah. You beautiful. Oh, thanks, yeah. thanks, you're such a good listener. Yeah. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. How is he doing this? This dude? He's not even married. So that's my, that's my friends from our journey community in our, our neighborhood, and uh, that last guy who was not even married, his name's Matt Dowd, and I'm really happy to say he is married to now to an awesome human being named Stephanie, and uh, he has now joined the ranks of that new challenge. Why is it, men, that as daters, we're oftentimes great listeners, but when we cross the threshold of becoming one with our wives, all of a sudden, we have a man challenge, how to stay engaged and how to practice this thing that Paul, when he's challenging everyone within the church of Ephesus and anyone that is a follower of Jesus, it's a great challenge. It's a great kind of application where Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Not a very popular word in our culture and might cause you to feel like you have electrodes on your brain, you're, you're doing this right now because you might have some baggage with that word, there might be misunderstanding of that word, there might have been misappropriated practice of that word and it triggers something for you. Last two weeks ago, last week was Brooke Lattice on Mother's Day, didn't she do an awesome job? It was just fantastic. She talked about kids obey your parents. But the week before that, we dipped into kind of as an overview on this word submit. In the time and in the culture in which Paul is writing this, we have no idea how revolutionary this really is. Because in that culture, it was really the sense of like, well, it's always the underling that submits to the, to the overlord. It's always a big guy, right, that is domineering over little guy. And, and the picture for Paul that he's kind of challenging, and that's still true today in our culture, is this love math 2.0 equation, which is one person who says, I am greater than you and I'm going to try to outdo you. But the other person says, no, 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 no. I'm greater than you. And you got two people just trying to go, no, it's all about me. No, it's all about me. And that leads to one big question mark. And the question, as we talked about two weeks ago, was, well, who wins in that kind of relationship? And the answer, tragically, is the one with the most power. 
And that leads to all sorts of pain, all sorts of carnage, leads to coercion, leads to manipulation, leads to domination, and a suffering and shrinkage of the heart. We're talking about relationship here, right? Where, where there should be intimacy, where there should be knowing, where there should be safety, where there should be trust. And Paul, in talking to a church of how at large they're to work with one another, he goes, it is not this, it is actually this. And he's saying, submit to one another. Who's the one another in that church context? It's like Jews and Gentiles. That's like asinine to talk about those two divergent kind of people to submit to one another. He's talking to men and women. What? He's talking to rich and poor. Wait a minute. It's those who have all the dough that get to have all the say. It's the haves. It's the have-nots. You know, in Roman society, it's the patricians. And then there are the plebeians, right? But Paul's going, no, it's not this. It is this. Now, let me tell you why out of reverence for Christ, he says, out of reverence. We have the ability to submit one to another. Why? Because we are submitting to Jesus. And as again, we said two weeks ago, one of the great amazing things about Jesus is that he himself, as the greatest leader of all time, submitted. And we see these beautiful pictures of Jesus submitting to the Father, though he is God equal participating member of the Trinity, his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one triune God, he still laid himself down, his life down, as it says earlier in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Like, this is what Jesus modeled, and we submit ourselves to him. And what does that mean about submission? It doesn't mean domination. It doesn't mean coercion. It doesn't mean power play. It doesn't mean passive aggressiveness. It means a few things based on what we learn of Jesus submitting. Number one, it does not mean inferiority. Number two, it is always voluntary. Number three, it does maintain distinction of role, of function. I'd add giftedness of leadership. It doesn't throw all of that out the window. And this one I didn't really hit till kind of later throughout the day two weeks ago. But submission, hear this very carefully, is not mutually exclusive from boundaries from boundaries. That's really important because I think maybe some of our experience and maybe some of our fear is if I yield to the other person, if I submit to the other person, that's really what it means, by the way. The word in the Greek is hupotasso, and it means to put yourself under. (laughs) I mean, it's it's, it's, it's not a word that we can easily just kind of throw out the window. It, it literally means I'm going to put myself under your influence or under your authority, but we can do that and still have boundaries, and still have boundaries. That's a much larger conversation, but here's what it means. It means that in our relationships, in a submitted relationship, there's no place for power play, domination, coercion, manipulation, or passive aggressiveness. And the last thing is that submission does not mean that you have less power when you lay yourself down, but that actually it leads to greater power. And in a relationship, what is that power? Anybody want to just shout it out loud from two weeks ago. Anybody want to be that, that person? You know, it's like, I remember. Come on. Come on. Yes. Yes. Let the balloons fall from the ceiling for you. Ticker tape parade. That's awesome. Intimacy. Because when we, out of reverence for Christ, turn it around and say, no, I'm going to yield to you, to your preferences, to your needs, to your desires. And the other person says, no, 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 I, I'm going to yield to you, right? You're, you're greater. I want to like lay myself down for you. And when two people do that, the question mark goes away and in its place, unicorn, baby. It's all unicorn. It's like, that's, that's like the zenith of relationship. When two people are yielding, deferring, laying themselves down in practical ways. When that happens in budget setting, it's amazing. I mean, when two people are like, hey, I don't don't know, I'm thinking about for you, and you just absolutely love to remodel. Now, I'm looking at the budget. I don't know that you have enough, so I'm going to give you a little bit of my golf fund so that you can have more to to do the remodel thing. And the other person goes, no, no, I've got enough, but do you have enough so that you can go? You know, like when two people are doing that, when when the question is who's going to clean the toilet or the bathroom, and two people are like, hey, listen, let me do that. I'm just telling you, it's downright sexy in a marriage. When there is a yielding spirit, 
one to another. It's safe there. There's trust there. There's intimacy there. And it comes straight out of where Paul says in the place of Philippians, he's like, hey, I know you've got your own interests. Those aren't bad, but treat one another as if theirs are greater, greater than. And that's having the attitude of Christ Jesus. This is what we know about submission. Paul's going, it's not this. It is this. And it is so beautiful if practiced appropriately and right. And now as we go deeper and further into this Ephesians passage, I believe that Paul is saying, look, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now let's talk about what the one another looks like specifically under a roof in a household. And I want to show you because there's been great kind of consternation. There's been great debate over this in terms of what is to follow in the passage. I want to show you from a picture of a, of a Bible I just grabbed this morning off the shelf. I want to let your eyes kind of surround, you know, just kind of get, get aware of the passage. Paul, we're in Ephesians 5. He's, he's making this beautiful point about we are imitators of God that you can't see what I'm saying here, but we're imitators of God, and it looks like this, and it looks like that, it looks like this. And if you look at We'll put a little arrow there. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We have, just, we have just looked at that. And then you see this kind of paragraph break, a little section heading. That is a big question mark in terms of why is that there? Because it kind of connotes the I'm done with a thought, Paul writing this, my kind of, my whole little paragraph and pericope, that, that's all over, and now I'm moving on to a new thought. Now, here's a little thing you need to know about the Greek in its original language. There was no spacing. There were no numbers of, like, chapters and verse. That came in about the 1500s. There was very little punctuation. It's a bunch of letters all kind of smushed together. And so, in order to make it um, accessible to us, it got cataloged with chapters and verses. And in order for it to breathe, because you don't like to just take something that's just all, just all letters, right? You've got to space it out a little bit. They, they inserted spacing. All of that's just kind of man-made helpfulness, except for when it's not helpful. So let me show you. Do you see what I'm saying here? It kind of looks like there's a thought that finishes Paragraph break, we all take a breath, and now we start a new thought that could possibly be dis disconnected from the prior thought. Here is um, a, a different translation and spacing. What's different? Yeah, they're all it's all together. The break happens right before it. I believe it's the more natural break. And what changes then? What changes is Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ becomes, a, becomes an umbrella headlining statement for everything that's going to follow. Does that make sense? Now, there's some contextual things I'll, I'll spare you of how I got there, but let me tell you one thing, by the way. We're kind of geeking out here, so geek with me, okay? W one thing that really kind of affirms for me that these two things are meant to be connected. If I were to show you verse 21, here's what it would say. In, in, you know, kind of woodenly translated, submit hupotasso to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then in the literal Greek, if we were just to go word for word, here's what it would say in verse 22. Wives, yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. The word for submit, even though we saw it in the translation, is not there in the original Greek language. So translators had to go, what what do we put there? There's no verb. Oh, we have to grab from the headlining thought here. We've got to grab from the context. What's the point Paul's trying to make? It's mutual submission. So, oftentimes in your Bible, you'll see uh, when a word is in italics, that means the translator's going, this is our best guess at what that word should really mean, okay? Do you see now how those two thoughts are not disconnected, how they are now extremely connected because we'd have no idea what Paul was saying in verse 22 without verse 21. Give me a head nod if, if, if you're with me on this, okay? 
So what this does all of a sudden is it changes the whole picture of done with the thought, okay, submit to one another. Now, wives, it's all about you submitting to your husbands. And husbands, you got a role too, but it does include submission to this picture of not from here to there, but from here we submit one to another out of reverence to submitting to Jesus out of Christ. And here's what that looks like. Not only Jews, Greeks, men, and women, not only rich and poor, not only the haves and the have-nots, but also in the picture of under your own roof from husbands and wives. This is what submission will look like for you. It'll look different but it's still going to call you back to the same picture of yielding one to another. Fathers and, and, and kids will, will, will uh, look at that. Is there still roles for leadership? All the, yes, of course. Slaves and masters. Now, we'll, we'll deal with that very specifically on June the 9th, right? So there's a lot of context to, to understand there. But do you get the initial kind of the full point? Here's the umbrella statement now. What does that look like for women? What does that look like for men? Interestingly, every time it says wives submit, that word submit is not there. It's relying upon someplace else. Okay, so let's actually look at the whole passage. Next week, we'll talk about um, how this applies to wives. And by the way, um, you'll hear from a wife, not from me, about that. Don't you think that would be smart on my behalf? Yeah, yeah, you'll, you're going to absolutely love it. Um, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, here's what that looks like for you as you do this to the Lord. For the husband's the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. We will address that momentarily. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit. That word's actually not there. Supplying, supplied by the line above. To their husbands in everything. Husbands, here's what submission looks like for you. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. We'll get to this. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband, two different applications for one umbrella mission to submit one to another. Okay, now, how many of us are tripped up on the whole leadership thing? You don't have to raise your hand, by the way. Where Paul says that the man is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the man. Do you see all that? Let's look at it here. The word is kephale in the Greek, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. This is one of the most hotly debated topics right now in all of Christendom, particularly in um, North American evangelical churchdom, right? And it's also a cultural hotbed of questions, right? So let me just tell you that this is one of those passages that two people who genuinely have a heart for God and a profound, deep respect for the Scriptures where their deepest convictions come from what we call the infallible Word of God, without error in all that it tends to speak on matters of faith and practice, two people can come to the same passages like this and end up in two different places and they can earnestly find themselves there. In other words, this would be a gray area. Questions of women in leadership, which by the way, if you haven't noticed, we had a female leader leading us in worship. Last week, Brooke spoke. You can tell how we lean as a church, but here's the point. The point is, uh, our theological ethos comes from a guy named St. Augustine or Augustine, and it says this, in essentials, unity 
in non-essentials, freedom. In all things, love. Now, just pause for a second and ask yourself, wouldn't our world be a much better place if we all lived by that creed? Would Twitter be a much happier place to live if we all lived by this place? In essentials, unity. What does that mean for the church? Those are theological beliefs, deep, profound beliefs about who God is, about who Jesus is as God, as fully man, fully God. Deep, profound beliefs about the cross that Jesus died for our sins, about the resurrection that He rose from the dead, that He ascended up to the heavenly realm, that He'll return one day to make all things new, and He'll do it literally and physically. We as a church, you can look it up online, we have about eight or nine different essential orthodox beliefs that we say, this is what defines a Jesus follower. There's not 30 of them. There's like eight of them, okay? And um, the question of trying to discern what Paul is saying here falls in the middle section, in non-essentials freedom. Now, let me just be really clear. By saying non-essential, we're not saying not important. We're not saying not personal, because it's very, very personal. All we're saying is, is that you can genuinely and in earnest, with a humbleness of heart, search the Scriptures, come out at two different places, and when you do, on this matter or in others like it, we don't call each other heretic. We don't cut off fellowship. We turn to one another and we say brother, and we say sister, okay? And this has saved, I would say, our church and many churches a thousand different unnecessary wars of saying what's essential, what is non-essential that we give freedom. And by the way, I love the last line, in all things, even with our enemies, even with those who persecute us, we're going to be a people who follow Jesus and practice love. Okay, so now what I'm going to give you, as I, best as I've searched this, I'm not the greatest, smartest scholar in the world. I'm just going to offer you my understanding and, and where I currently am on what does Paul mean when he says the word head? What is he trying to get at there? And I'll just tell you, my level of confidence on what I'm going to offer you on a 10-point scale, it's like probably a six, okay? So, I'm just going to offer it to you. If Paul really wanted to be clear about that this passage is speaking to the man is the sole leader of the household, if he really wanted to be clear that he's talking about authority, and really the context is about submission, right? Not about hierarchy. He would have used a different word, which is arche, which means ruler or authority. And that word is very prevalent, would have been at Paul's disposal, um, and it wouldn't have been like, what's that word? It would have been very well known. Jesus used that word when he described how, um, how the world lives by domination, but he tells his disciples, I'm going to call you to live a different way. Read this with me. He says to his disciples, you know that those who are regarded as arcane, or arche, that's where the, this word appears, that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And you see Jesus here, uh, basically, uh, Paul is picking up where, where Jesus left off. And he's just going, no, look, it's not this. Paul goes, it's this. But Jesus goes, actually, even if, if you call yourself leader, it's like this. Paul knew that word. He could have used that word. He didn't. He used the word kephale, which has kind of two large categorical meanings. One is it means a head, just like literal uh, a part of the body. And that is, um, that is the, kind of the dominant metaphor even Paul's using. You notice he, he used the word, uh, we are members of his body. He uses that in Ephesians chapter 4 about talking about the body. It's one of Paul's favorite images. So, in a literal sense, like the head of an oxen kind of thing, and that appears all over in the Scriptures. Then there's a metaphorical rendering of the word kafale, which can mean leader. I want to be really clear about that. It can just mean the leader, the one in authority. It can also mean point or tip of spear or source or origin. 
What's interesting in the New Testament is every time the word kafale appears, it either means the literal head, and it actually in the New Testament never means or refers to some figure of authority. It's kind of interesting. And if you look at how in the Old Testament, when the Hebrew gets translated into the Greek, out of 180 times, uh, that word is not used for, uh, well, let me say it this way, only eight times out of 180 is kafale used for leader. Okay, so can it mean leader? Absolutely. Does it have to? No. And so the argument that many scholars make is that Paul is talking about the created order in which it happened back in the days of creation, where God, and as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, called into creation first the man, and out of the man's rib came the woman, that Paul is referring back to origin and to source. We see this in a different place, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Are you still with me, by the way? Are you still with me? Because I, I know we're like, we're getting in the weeds. Um, but I just, I think, and I'm saving you from a lot of stuff too, by the way. But I think this is important. Paul says, it's very similar, right? He says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, that feels very hierarchical, doesn't it? If you were to just read it through, Paul's talking about authority. You go, okay, the head of man is Christ, so you got Christ, and you got man, then you got woman, but it's that last line that doesn't work with that logic. And let's put it back up here. That last line says, the head of Christ is God, but wait a minute, Christ is God, fully God. And there's, we're talking about the Trinity here, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, each person is God, equally so, right? Now, all of a sudden, we're making one subordinate under the other, and that's a heresy called subordinationism. And so, all of a sudden, that kind of logic breaks down, or we can read it through the idea of source and origin. Christ created man, and man from his rib came woman, both created in the image of God, as the Scriptures so clearly, clear, clearly offer us. So, that's, in essence, where I land. Remember, I said like at a six or a seven? Let me tell you what it… So, what I believe it means is that Paul is just going, look, you are of the same kind of source. You, you come both made in the image of God, and he's restore, returning to the uh, created order in which it so beautifully is described in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Here's what it doesn't mean, though. It doesn't mean that as a man, I don't bring leadership into our marriage. In fact, we are called to bring our great strength into everything that, we're, that we find ourselves in. In the picture of mutual submission, it does not mean passivity. I've shared this before, but one of the grave, destructive things in any relationship, particularly in a marriage, is a man's passiveness, a leaning back, a withholding, versus a leaning in and a powerful yielding to the other. And so for Elise and I, in our marriage, I bring leadership into our marriage. So does she. And it's generally based upon her giftings, her passion sometimes, her experiences, her wisdom, my giftings, my passion, my wisdom. And we just defer to one another. We live out of this kind of equation. And I know it begs the question, well, someone's got to be in charge. Like, who gets the who gets to cast the, the winning vote when you're like tied, you know, and locked in a deal? And I just, have to, I just have to tell you, I never think that way. I don't think. I don't think in terms of, well, who gets the, the majority vote here? Because covenant is not a democracy. Covenant is something that God created between the two of us. And when we live, even in the place of disagreement, even in the place of like not being on the same page, God is forging something really deep and really beautiful. I mean, I just believe speed of the spouse, speed of the team. And when I will yield versus what are my options if we're not on the same page? What's my option? My option is to try this, right? How does that go? 
How has it worked for you? you? You might win the battle and you lose the what? You lose the war. You lose the war. And so, just in our 16 years of marriage, I, I, and again, it's not a perfect marriage. We're, we're figuring it out. We're working it out. But when we both bring leadership, when we both bring our great strength into that place, it's a beautiful thing. Trust gets grown there. It becomes a safe place. Intimacy really begins to grow. Now, wherever you might land on that, if I've ticked you off or if you think I, you know, I'm, I'm being, you know, a wimp on this thing. That's totally, whatever you want to think about that. But if I said I'm like at a six on that point, I'm at a 10 on the next one. Because the radical thing that Paul is offering here, which is really undeniable, the main point in this entire passage that Paul is trying to say here, the thing that would have turned everybody's like attention and every head like cocked sideways was what Paul said to men. When he says this, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. See, I just find it so amazing. Here's the truth that what's undeniable, and I don't know why he does this, is that Paul associates men as the Christ figure in this metaphor. He does do that, right? I don't know why. I mean, obviously, as women, you find yourself in, in the life of Jesus. There's neither male nor female, as Paul says. Like, that's all true. But in this instance, he says, men, you're the Christ figure in this story. And if this were a movie, what scene from the life of Jesus would he depict to say, this is what it's like for you men? Would he, would he choose like um, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, where he sits down and people, you know, flock to him and they all sit down and they just live off every single word? Is that what it's like, man? We come home and we sit down at the table and then we just pontificate words of eloquence and wisdom to our family. Is that the image that, that's used? No. Is it, is it the transfiguration where we go up on a mountain and Jesus completely shines in all of his glory and everyone's like that's so amazing can we just pitch tents right here and we'll just stay here forever and just bask in the glory glory of your of your radiance no he didn't do that is it the triumphal entry you know where you, you come home and you, you mount a, a king's transport and, and your children and your wife get out palm branches, you know, and they start singing songs of coronation to you. No, Paul didn't offer any of that imagery, men. Do you know what he did offer? Crucifixion. The cross, and we just read it right there, and gave himself up for her. This is the undeniable part about, about the whole passage. Whatever you want to believe about this, that, or the other is fine. It will all lead, all lead to this point, either mutual submission or servant leadership, and it leads to the same place, which is love. Love your wives. Every time that word is used in this passage… Paul had three different words to his disposal he could have used. He could have used the word eros, which means erotic love. He didn't. He could have used phileo, which is more of a brotherly kind of love, a sisterly kind of love, a day-to-day -day practical kind of friendship kind of love. But every time, he used the word unconditional love, agape, every single time, referring to Jesus, referring to men, agape, unconditional. You know what's so radical about that? is that in the culture and the time of Paul's day, a man could divorce a woman on all sorts of conditions if she burnt his toast, said one rabbi named Hillel. If she were found attractive to another man, he could divorce her. If she were found unattractive to him, he could divorce her. Woman had no say in the court of law, was completely dismissed at every turn. And now all of a sudden, Paul is saying, without condition, love your wife. It's crazy. In a culture in which women were considered property, not much more valued than slaves or oxen and mules. Paul goes on to say, look at this with me, goes on to say this. In the same way, husbands, you ought to love your wives as, as your own bodies. He who loves his, his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. He goes on to say, actually, in, in a different place in Corinthians about sex, he says an even more radical thing. He says, actually, a man has authority over his wife's body, and you're like, 
you know, if, you're, if you live in that culture, you're like, well, yeah. And then he says, and wives, you have authority over your husband's body. What? What? What's Paul doing? I mean, the culture was like this, and Paul's going, no, it is like this, but he doesn't actually stop there. He seems to say, and men, you are to give yourselves up, and when you give yourselves up, and when you surrender yourselves, and when you married your wife, guess what? Here's the good news, is that you decided to take on and become the primary conduit by which your wife will receive the love of God. Think about that. Will she receive love through other things? Yes. If, if she's not married, will she receive love through so many things? Yes, God will do that. But when you gave your covenantal vows, you said, I am going to be the primary conduit by which she experiences the love of God, the sacrificial love of God who gave himself up for her. And I love that word radiance. Blame, uh, blameless, spotless, but that word radiant. I just, I just know. I just, I just, you know, you can tell in a marriage when a, when a woman is loved with the love of God through her husband well. There's a radiance. There's a freedom. There's a joy. There's an empowerment. There's a, a releasing, an unleashing. There's a full stride about her. And there's something in the initiation here that I, I just, I think is really interesting. The initiation is God went first with us. You want to talk about tiebreakers? Like who cast the final vote? Here's where, men we get the tiebreaker. We get the tiebreaker to go first and die to ourselves, and be the first one in the gridlock when it's like this, when it's like that. And you're like, well, who gets the casting vote? And we say, I do. I do. We're the Christ figure in the story. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so what I want to ask of us here in this moment, man, I've got uh, what I'm just going to call a man assignment for you. You up for a man assignment? A little challenge? It's this. To whomever is your most important relationship, by the way, but specifically since the topic today is husbanding, I'm going to ask you today, not tomorrow, not this week, I'm going to ask you today to turn to your wife in a posture of yielding and simply ask, how can I love you and serve you better? How can I love you and serve you better? Okay? Now, don't do what I do in this moment. I want to remind her of all the ways I serve her first, okay? Don't do that. I always do that. I love to point out the ways I am so submitted. Don't do that. With an open palm, ask the Lord just to give you the ability to receive and to hear and to listen, right? We're coming full circle. Now, women, wives, may I suggest this is not the time to just go into your gunny sack, okay? And all the things, you're like, you've been waiting for this question, right? You're like, yes! Okay, it's not the time to hammer home. What I want to ask of you, it's really the same thing of all of us. Would you go before the Lord and say, Lord, what is, okay, so I'm talking to you ladies, what is my deepest need? Lord, would you show me how I can most experience your love through my husband? Okay? So this isn't the time to bring out the, the laundry list. This is the time for you to be a safe place. This is a time for two people to both yield to one another and to go deeper and further. And if that happens, there's going to be so much more intimacy. This is a conversation we want to see open up, not get hammered home. Understand? Okay? Okay, I want, to do, I want to do something. I want to just ask how many of you, by show of hands, men, how many of you are, whether it's to your wife or to your most important relationship, how many of you are going to ask that question today? Awesome. It's totally fine if you're undecided. Women, how many of you are going to pray the prayer, what do I most need to experience the love of God through my husband or my most important relationship? Awesome. Well, I'm going to invite the band up, and as the band comes up to close us out with the song, um, I want to invite up John Ald 
to come share how he has been doing this. Um, John is one of our pastoral elders. John is a, a member of our communicator team. He's also the one, if you've ever called for prayer or written an email request for prayer, John is the one who receives those prayers and then writes the most beautiful prayers and sends them out on your behalf to, um, to our entire, entire praying community. And I have watched John love his wife for many years now. And, um, and I just want you to kind of hear in application form what this looks like for, for you, John, and for Vicki. How long have you and Vicki been married? We have been married for 45 years. It'll be 46 in August. Wow. All right. You're doing something right. Yeah. I want to say I've made a lot of mistakes in my life, and if I had to do it all over again, there's many things I would want to change. But as far as my wife and God's choice of a wife for me, I would do it all over again in a heartbeat, even though I know how it's going to turn out. Ah, uh, yeah. Vicki, would you just raise your hand, Vicki, in the front row? So as, as uh, you sit and you hear uh, the conversation here today, just what kind of pops from your experience, John? Okay. Well, first off, when I got married, I thought that I was going to be the head of the house, the leader, uh -huh. and I thought that my main job as the leader was to provide for my family. Uh -huh. And that didn't work out very well on lots mm. of levels. Mm. And I had this whole picture that by the time uh, we, we, we had kids, we got married at 21, we had kids in the first three years, and we figured that by the time the kids were out of the house, we'd be in our early to mid-40s, and we could run and have fun and be a couple and, you know, do all these things. And that's not the way life worked out. Mm. My wife's health continued to, started to get bad, and tin continued to get worse and worse and worse. And it finally got to the place where she left church uh, because she wasn't getting healthier and the believers at the old church we used to go to were kind of upset with her that she wouldn't get healed. Um, and so she was really questioning God and questioning the whole thing. And I realized that I was busy doing the wrong things. I needed to step in and cover her. I needed mm. to love her. And so I could have continued to go to church, but I said, if Vicky's not going to church, I'm not going to church. I'm going to stay home with her. I'm going to love her. I'm going to support her. And what happened? Her health got worse and worse and worse. And I started doing more things around the house and caring for more things. And um, by today, um, if there's housework that gets done, 90% of it I do, the vacuuming every well, I won't tell you how infrequently, but anyway. <laughs> it's on you. Yeah, it's on me. Yeah. I, I do all the cooking. I, I do, you know, the dishes and the whatever, et cetera. Um, I've had over the years to give up things like, you know, what I do with my evenings and weekends. She can't drive, hmm. so I say no. If she possibly wants to do something and feels well enough to go do something on a Saturday, I need to be available for her. Hmm. So I've said no to other things, et cetera. But in that process, it's just been because I love her and because that's the way we're supposed to love each other. And then, you know, uh, when we started coming to Heartland after God did a miraculous thing and brought her back to the Lord, yay. Um, mm. When we started coming to Heartland, one of the things I intentionally did is when we stand for worship, I stay seated for worship. Mm. Because mm. she can't stand for worship and I want to be there with her in solidarity. Mm -hmm. And as I've gotten older, I don't stand as well either sometimes, but, but it's because I want to be with her, because I want to support her. Man, that's beautiful. Can you all just hear that greater than turning to the less than? That is amazing. And John, you also have, um, you have a, a bigger kind of story that comes into play here, that, meaning this is how God loves you. And of course, it's the passage we just looked at. But there's a passage from the Old Testament from Hosea yeah. that really kind of is a parallel to what we've just talked about. Can you describe that? Because it's really, it's been informative even to your vows, right? Yeah, very much so. Um, the passage is Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. And it reads, I will betroth you unto me forever. I will betroth you unto me in righteousness and justice. I will betroth you unto me in loving kindness and compassion and in faithfulness 
and then you will know the Lord. Now, that's God's betrothal vows to the people Israel, and by extension to us, the church. You know, as the bride of Christ, the, the all believers, Israelis, whoever, whoever believes in Jesus, the big ending is in Revelations at the marriage feast of the Lamb, and that's his betrothal vows to us. And so when I read that, I went, oh, that's really cool. So this tells me how God loves and why he loves. And I just want to, without doing the total Bible geek thing, <laughs> um, I, want to, I want to just touch a few things. First off, God loves us forever, for eternity. Not until we do something wrong to disappoint him. Not until he gets more interested in something else. Hmm. So when Vicki and I got married, we decided we're going to take that whole, that Hosea 2, 19 and 20, and make it our wedding vows. And so the first thing we vowed was that we were going to have a lifetime covenant with each other without regard to the condition of what we're doing. It's not conditional upon, does she do what I want her to do, or do I do what she wants me to do? It's no, we've made a covenant. We're going to love each other forever. Second thing is righteousness and justice. As Dan has done wonderfully over the last two years, righteousness is right relationship that was facilitated between God and man by what Jesus did on the cross, by his death and by his resurrection. And justice is God treating each of us fairly based upon not what we deserve by God's grace, but by what Jesus did. He looks at us through what Jesus did on the cross, and he loves us justly as his people. Well, that's what I want to do with my wife. We vowed that we're going to strive to have a right relationship between each other. We're going to continually try to turn towards each other. And we're going to continually not look at each other's sins and failures. But we're going to look for what's best in each other. Next is he vows in loving kindness and in faith, excuse me, loving kindness and in compassion. Well, loving kindness is turning towards the other person and their needs. It's easy to turn towards somebody that doesn't have any needs, you know, but if they have a need, that's when you really need to turn towards them. And then you need to give them compassion, which is made up of two religious words, grace and mercy. Grace means unmerited favor. I'm going to give you favor even though you don't deserve it. And mercy means I'm not going to give you what you do deserve. And that's what Vicky's done towards me, and that's what I've done towards her. That, that was our covenant decision. Mm. And then the final thing is, and um, I will betroth you unto me in faithfulness. That's a consistency. I'm going to always be there for you. Keep in mind, covenant is not dependent upon what the other person does. It's dependent upon the person who made the covenant. And that's God's covenant towards us, and that's my covenant towards Vicky and her covenant towards me. Now, that sounds really, really cool, but that's just how God loves. The really important part is why God loves that way. The last verse, and then you will know the Lord. God will reveal his character, who he is, to us by how he loves us. And the word know there is the same word that's used in Genesis where Adam knew Eve and conceived Cain. It's an intimate knowledge. It's an intimate revelation. And the word Lord there is actually the Hebrew word Yahweh, which in the Hebrew language they don't, even, they don't say Yahweh because it's the unnameable name of God. So they just translate it your Lord. So this is a personal relationship, an intimate relationship. By God loving us that way, that's how we get to know him. And that's what Vicky's and I have vows were to try and love each other with God's love so that we could show God to each other in our love. Interesting that the net effect leads to intimacy. Yeah. Just like we, we began here today. John, that is absolutely beautiful. I love that picture of those two things kind of coming together, Ephesians, Hosea, and speaking of our God and how we submit one to another. Um, how can we pray for you and for Vicki? We'd love to close in the band. You can start leading us in some worship here, but how can we pray for the two of you. Okay. Well, you're going to have to ask her. <laughs> I'm well, not going to speak okay. for her. Yeah, yeah. For me personally, I'm really selfish. And this whole process over the last 45 years is 
turning from being selfish to being selfless. And so I want God to continue to help me with that. And I think Vicki could say the same. And then the other thing is, is I'm kind of a black and white, uh, pass-fail kind of guy. I don't see a middle ground. And so I think I should be batting a thousand. And I don't. If I'm, I'm lucky if I bat 250, you know. Um, but that's okay. I want God to help me understand that as long as I stay in the batter's box, as long as I keep swinging to love my wife, that I'll do better. Awesome. Well, Nanette, you're already right there. If you just put a hand on Vicki and Bob and Chris, if you guys want to go over and just place a hand on Vicki, I'll pray for John. Anybody else want to come around and place a hand on, on John? And so, Lord, we just say, um, almost as representative of all of us in this room, in our most important relationships, husbands, wives, friends, roommates, sisters, uncles, brothers. We just, um, we come and we love this idea that you have betrothed yourself to us and that nothing could ever be um, removed, shaken, or taken, this love that you have for us. And that's what I hear John asking for on behalf of his wife is that, Lord, even though um, we don't always live up to our vows, you do you do. And we want to build our lives upon you, O oh God, and the vows that you have made to us. The unconditional, relentless, never-ending, never-changing, always turn towards us kind of love that you have for us. Would your power, God, just bless, touch, heal Vicki in the places where she needs heart, mind, soul, and body, and would you, God, do the same over John? And for the next 20 years, 30 years, from 46 to 76 years of marriage, we pray, come on, God. Thank you. And for all of us, God, as we turn towards each other with the question of how can I love and how can I serve, God, give us grace for that conversation. Give us courage to truly listen and hear and take us into greater depths of intimacy, we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen, amen. Let's stand and close together.